Then David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even as, even so will I do this this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May the Lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord, the king, as the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord, King David, has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours. And make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was, when it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Well, many events and decisions have shaped our nation. 
but two significant ones occurred early on. On the heels of the Revolutionary War, our country lacked a strong government. George Washington's role as commander-in-chief in the army and then the leader of the Continental Congress led many to seek him to be the nation's leader. Some, whether of serious intent or not, we don't know, but some even suggested that he should become king, to which Washington then replied this would be a complete contradiction of what the war was all about. Yet though, office, though Washington would not take any role like a monarch, he did acquiesce to run for the office of president. Except Washington did not live for power. So even though Alexander Hamilton said, you could be president for life, he was willing to step down after two terms, setting a precedent all the way up to FDR until it was then enshrined in the Constitution of only two terms in office. Washington, though, did not seek power. And when the time came, after the Revolutionary War and then in his presidency, both times he turned down the power. The shocking nature of this is hard for us to grasp because we see people give up the presidency all the time. Oh, they just transfer from one party to the next. But this is not the normal way things ran. When King George heard of this, when he heard what Washington would do, he said he will be the greatest man in the world if he will do that. You know, to give up the power of a nation when you don't have to? Why would you do that? You know, People long for power, and the more power that is up for grabs, often the more violent it becomes as to who will get it. You know, our country was blessed to have a man like George Washington who set an example of using power to serve rather than power to be served. Thus, even when he had the power, he willingly gave it up. Yet this is not often the case, for as you read history, you'll often find that power only changes hands when heads have also been taken off. Thus, any time there's a question of who's going to be next in power, there's a question of how is it going to happen. And that is where the book of Kings opens up, because we open reading of David's decline. If you have a bulletin, you can see the five kind of sections of this first chapter because we read of David's decline but then we read of Adonijah's self-exaltation then the prophet Nathan intervenes to fourth Solomon being coronated as king and then lastly Adonijah has to submit but it begins in chapter one of us being told that King David was old and advanced in years and though his servants tried they couldn't keep him warm maybe you've had the experience I have You've gone to visit an elderly person in their home, and as they open the door, you almost get knocked back from the heat. And then as you're sitting there talking and just like sweltering and wondering how could someone enjoy this, they say, you know, I'm a little chilly. Can I turn the heater up? And you're thinking, what are you talking about? How can you be so cold? And yet, it's a reality through time, through literally millennia, that as we get older, we can't keep ourselves warm, even to King David. And yet being cold kind of suggests something. It suggests, no, they're not as mobile. They're not as active and strong as they used to be. In other words, no longer are people saying, hey, King David is killing his thousands. Now they're saying King David's shaking in bed with teeth chattering, even though he has blankets falling off, they're piled so high. Well, David's servants come up with a plan to help David, and that is that they're going to search for a woman to come next to the king 
to keep him warm and to serve him. They search all of the kingdom and they find this beautiful young woman named Abishag, a Shunammite, a tribe from northern Israel, a clan from northern Israel. And she serves the king as a servant. But notice what it says in verse 4. The author adds, but the king did not know her. Now, this is obviously not talking to his mental state. This is telling of King David's faithfulness to God, his restraint, or maybe his lack of his ability, either way, of not seeking intimacy. Now, we're only four verses into Kings, and we've already run up into one of the things that we mentioned in the introduction. And that is, as we read through it, we go, that's a little weird. What, what is going on? Now, we have to say a couple things about this. One, we aren't given many details. So you can read into this the worst case or the best case. So we could ask questions, and we could say, why did they have to get a young girl to keep him warm? Are you more warm if you're beautiful and young than old and fat? Probably not. What would other kings of the time have meant by having a young girl? Well, we know what they meant. Now, did Abishag want this? Maybe this was, hey, my family is subsistence farmers. This is, I am being picked to be the hand-chosen girl with the king. This is a blessing, maybe. Or maybe she was dragged into this kicking and screaming. We aren't told. We don't know. Maybe this was a dream. Maybe it wasn't. Um, what was she expected to do? We aren't told. But we know one thing, and that is that David's actions were moral towards her. As we noted when we talked about the overview of 1 Kings, we said the Bible often does not say after a story, this was good, this was bad. And yet here, it gives us a very clear indication because it says King David did not know her. Now, in this, it's not trying to act as though King David was always moral. We could turn and talk about what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. We could read in 2 Samuel 5 that when he moved to Jerusalem, he took more wives and more concubines to himself. This clearly broke God's pattern of marriage being between one man and one woman for life. It also directly contradicted God's command in Deuteronomy 17 that the king not have many wives. And thus, though David was great on many levels, and in this case did act morally, there are other times when he did not. And as we said in our introduction, Kings is pointing us to the fact that we need a greater king than is ever going to be found by a mere human. We need the king of kings to come, of which we were singing about, Jesus of Nazareth. But really, all of this is being said to show an important thing, and that is King David's about to die. And so it raises the question, well, what is going to happen next? And we see that in verses 5 through 10 through Adonijah's self-exaltation. Will there be a peaceful transfer of power? Well, we're going to find out because Adonijah pridefully exalts himself, it says in verse 5, and says, well, I'll be king. I'll take that role. Now, sadly, this isn't the first attempt to take the throne of David. Absalom, David's third oldest son, tried to take it in 2 Samuel 14 when it was only defeated by Joab and the army of David that came to his side. Following on the heels of this in 2 Samuel 20, there was a rebellion by a man named Sheba, which Joab again averted. But now we have Adonijah, and he knows kingly customs, because what does he do? 
He gets chariots. He gets horsemen. He has 50 men run in front of him. Now this is an entourage. Adonijah looks like a man who should be king. And yet then the author pauses and tells us three important things in verses 5 and 6. First, he says, David never rebuked Adonijah, nor did anything that displeased him. Second, we are told of Adonijah's handsome appearance. Striking physical appearance helps any desirous leader. But in this case, beyond saying it helps him, it's also alluding to something. And who else was told to be very handsome? Well, King Saul and Absalom. The author is hinting that Adonijah is not the godly man he should be. Well, David is lying in bed, weak. In contrast, we have this man, Adonijah, strong, seeking power. And yet, though these things may get power for a time, God declared in 1 Samuel 16, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Well, the third thing mentioned in these verses is that he was the brother born after Absalom. And we are shown here somewhat of a positive side of Adonijah, and that is Adonijah is actually the next oldest son to be on the throne. So in some ways, it's not unfounded for Adonijah to seek the throne. The oldest son, Amnon, was killed by Absalom. The second oldest son, Chiliab, is never mentioned again after he's said to have been born. And so many think he has died, though we're not told. And then Absalom was put to death. And so though Israel did not have many customs because it had only been Saul and then David, it would seem most likely from the nations, well, who becomes next king? Well, the oldest male. So Adonijah is not just out of whole cloth deciding, you know what, I'll become king. There is some rationality to it. And yet, probably he's a mix like all of us. There's some logic, and yet there's some pride. There's some bravado and self-promotion, and yet we have little ways we can rationalize why it's okay. Well, it goes on in verse 7, because not only did Adonijah recruit this entourage to run before him, he also got important leaders on his side. Specifically, he got Joab, the leader of the army, and Abiathar, the priest, to join him. Now, these are not just any men. If, as you read the Old Testament, you know, these are men who are with David from early on. Abiathar has been with David since Doeg tried to kill David, after Doeg was with Ahimelech in 1 Samuel 22. Joab has been the leader of the army ever since King Saul died. And so these two men give credence to Adonijah's going to the throne. Well, he had some very important leaders. We see in verse 8, he didn't have every leader. Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, Shimei and Rei, and David's mighty men were not willing to join him. But Adonijah knows how to do this. He then, he goes and makes many sacrifices as they would do before a coronation. He has a great feast where he invites his brothers, the king's sons, the men of Judah, and the servants of the king to this coronation feast. And yet, it's clear that Adonijah knows everything is not really above bar because he doesn't invite Solomon, he doesn't invite Nathan, and he doesn't invite some of these others. It's clear that Adonijah realizes he's being underhanded. 
Now, at this point, we're unsure. What about these other people? Do they realize this? Well, we're going to see later on that David has to tell people who will be king. So we don't know, are Joab and Abiathar being unloyal? They had seemed very loyal throughout. Were they thinking, you know, David's getting old and he hasn't really said, and if we don't get someone in power, the Philistines are going to come in. So look, it's Adonijah. Yeah, we should just help him. Well, we're not told. Adonijah does have to promise loyalty, whereas the others don't. Well, whatever the case, we can see from David's life that he kind of sowed these troubles for himself in two ways. First, he did not discipline his children. This is really interesting because the issue was not David's personal walk with the Lord, nor David's desires. Adonijah, y'all probably heard Adonai. Adonai means Lord, with the I at the end, it's my Lord, and then Jah is Yahweh. David named his son, my Lord is Yahweh. In other words, he wanted his son to serve God. It's not like he didn't care and was like, well, I don't care what, who they worship. I'll let them choose. No, he had a desire to serve God. He had a desire for his son to love God, and yet he had a desire not to upset his son. He refused to tell Adonijah the things that would make Adonijah upset. Now, every parent understands this struggle. We don't enjoy, as much children may think, we don't enjoy making our children upset. It's not a fun day when you need to discipline your children. Yet, God calls us as parents to look beyond our personal momentary happiness to see longer-term desire for the child's holiness. Hebrews 12, 11 says it this way, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now we need to be very clear. This does not mean, well, if you faithfully parent your children, then they will become godly. I grew up in a great church and had many families around my age. And as I grew up and I now look back over time, I can see wonderful families that had some children who served the Lord and some who don't. I've seen some families that didn't seem so, so wonderful, and they have some children serve the Lord and some who do not. And the point is not it's all a wash, it doesn't matter. No, we all need to be faithful to God, and yet we also need to pray. There's no formula for parenting. There's no, if I can get them to be in this event, memorize this set of verses, do this, then they'll love the Lord. But neither is it, well, if God wants them saved, he wants them saved. We must be parents who do what God calls us to do, and we must be parents who pray. We need both. But in that, we're being reminded here, part of that is realizing you have to be willing to care more about what God says about your parenting than what your child says about your parenting. One man wrote this letter to his son. He says, Dear son, as long as you live under this roof, you will follow the rules. In our house, we do not have a democracy. I did not campaign to be your father. You did not vote for me. We are father and son by the grace of God. I didn't write this, by the way. I consider it a privilege, and I accept the responsibility. In accepting it, I have an obligation to perform the role of a father. I am not your pal. 
We can share many things, but you must remember that I am your father. This is 100 times more meaningful than being a pal. You will do as I say as long as you live in this house. You're not to disobey, disobey me because whatever I ask you to do is motivated by love. This may be hard for you to understand at times, but the rule holds. You will understand perfectly when you have a son of your own. Until then, trust me, love dad. You know, that's what we need as parents. And may God give us the mercy to live that out. Live out these other rules, and because I love you, you'll do this. And then also the mercy and grace when our children sin like we do. So David kind of sowed these troubles when throughout Adonijah's life he didn't say, no, I don't like that, don't care. You're my son. That's not going to work. And so Adonijah had kind of bred into them, I'm going to do what I want. But second, David sowed these troubles by having many wives. There wouldn't be a fight for the throne if there was only one set of children to choose from. But there's the women of Haggith. Sorry, the children of Haggith. There's the children of Bathsheba and then other children. And so there's these multiple sets that are conflicting. You know, along with the Bible condemning polygamy by principle, it shows us time and again in practice that it only sows disruption and conflict. You know, David at the time was just seeking power, seeking pleasure, but in the end, he reaped disruption and chaos in his life and his kingdom. And things would have gone very badly, we'll see, if it were not for Nathan's intervention. We see that in verses 11 through 27. Because Nathan quickly goes and he tells Bathsheba, Solomon's mother of Adonijah's plan. And then Nathan and she make a plan and they're going to save Bathsheba and Solomon's life. Now that's not hyperbole. Their life was on the line. As we said earlier, if you want the power to change hands in that time, that means you also took off people's heads. And so they need to do something if they are going to live. And so Bathsheba must go ask the king rhetorically, didn't you promise me, swear on God's name, that Solomon would be king? And of course the answer is yes. Now again, it's not clear how widely this promise of Solomon being the next king was known. Clearly Nathan knew about it, and it sure seems like Adonijah had at least a glimpse of it, but you can read all the Old Testament, and there's never a verse that says, and David promised this to Bathsheba. We do read it here, and yet, do the other people know? Well, in verse 20, they sell, tell David, you need to let people know who's going to be king. And so it seems most likely that in the court, in David's family, everyone kind of knew at the dinner table, hey, Dad, who's going to be king next? Well, I, I promise Solomon. They all knew, but the people in the countryside, they don't know who it is. And so Bathsheba's going to go, and then Nathan, to be a confirmation, a second witness, and along with Deuteronomy, is going to come in and verify, yeah, Adonijah's seeking the throne, and didn't you make this promise? And so Bathsheba follows the script. She goes in, and she asks about, didn't you make this promise to me and Solomon? And she's telling him of all that Adonijah's doing. Look, he's made the sacrifices. He has this entourage. He has this feast. And you know what? Somehow, don't know how, he forgot to invite Solomon. Isn't that weird? And David's not dumb. He knows what it means that Solomon's not invited. That means Solomon's life is on the line. He knows what it means that these other people were not there. Well, then Nathan comes in right on the heels and confirms everything that Bathsheba says. And Nathan also recounts, look, 
There's these important people, the people there, and they are saying, long live King Adonijah. In other words, hey, Bathsheba and I aren't our, off our rocker and think anytime someone has a meal, they're trying to steal the throne. These people are saying, long live King Adonijah. There, there's a play for the power here. You have to understand that. And then Nathan kind of adds, is this really the case? Did you not tell me and the other servants that you really want Adonijah? And so they are putting David in a situation of what, what is it that you want? And are you going to do anything? And I think this part of the story reminds us of a very essential theological truth. And that is that God's sovereignty should never be understood to remove man's responsibility. Randy Alcorn tells the story of a man coming to him and saying, I'm really upset with God. I'm mad at God. And Alcorn says, well, what's going on? He goes, God let me commit adultery. And Alcorn kind of looked at him, and as they were talking, he took a book, and he kept pushing it towards the end of his desk, and right at the very edge he said, God, don't let the book fall. The book fell. And Alcorn was making the point, you're responsible You can't blame God if I'm going to push a book to the end of the desk and then go, well, God, don't let it hit the ground. Well, that's foolish. We shouldn't be mad at God when we sin. We're the sinners. And here, Nathan, and I'm sure he did pray, but Nathan never didn't just say, you know what? I'm going to pray. It'll work out. He prayed and he acted. Yes, God is 100% in control and has ordained every single molecule and mountain, every single desire and decision. He has determined every damnation and salvation. Except Scripture also teaches that God's control and ordination of all should never be understood as though we have no responsibility. We are not puppets living in a fatalistic universe in which everything's going to happen no matter what we do. We have no say. So Nathan knew that yes, God's sovereign, but to avert this coup and to save Solomon and Bathsheba's life, I need to act. Likewise, as you pray for your neighbor and your family member for their salvation, you also need to pray, God, help me know when to speak. I need to speak to them at some point. As you pray that God would give you good health, you should go to the gym. As you ask God for godly character, you should read your Bible. You should pray. You should remove the things that are tempting to you and gather with God's people. As you pray for our nation, you should be involved in political discussions and actions. Pray for God to act and be willing to be the one God uses to stand in the gap. Not just be willing, but like Nathan, be strategic. Be bold. Be quick to step up. G.C. Rice writes, The chapter is a summons to the man and woman of God to be in the midst of the rowdy, the untidy push and shove of human striving where God's purposes are at stake and to act with boldness and the astuteness of a Nathan. Bad leadership and evil often only succeed with the consent, the passive consent of the righteous. And so Nathan's willingness to act is a reminder, yes, we should pray. And yes, we should act. We must act to save lives. And that Nathan did that, and he also led 
from verses 28 to 40, the fourth section, Solomon's coronation. So it seems that Bathsheba went out of the room when Nathan comes in because David calls Bathsheba back in in verse 28. And when you were noticing that though David is physically frail, he is still mentally and spiritually strong. He then swears as Yahweh lives that Solomon will reign and sit upon the throne. But notice what he says in verse 29. He says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. The Hebrew word for adversity means to bind or to restrict. We, we use the idea, I'm all tied up. It's when we're in distress. We're all tied up in knots. The same word is used when Jacob hears of Esau coming with his army, and he is in adversity or distress. What's going to happen? And David is in distress. He's had agony before. Amnon and Tamar. Absalom's murder of Amnon. Absalom's later rebellion. Now his children again bringing great distresses. There's a fighting over the will, so to speak. Who's going to have the power? Surely David, as he hears this news, just, oh, the knots, oh. I'm about to die and my children are still fighting. And yet, notice David did not find comfort by turning to Abishag, nor with drink or diversions. David found comfort by turning to God who always redeems his soul from distress. Notice that God redeems, or in other words, buys back all of David's distress. David does not say, God, you're the one who removes every single one of my distresses. God does not remove every distress from your life. If you think of God as one who is just there to make your life cushioned, you have misunderstood God. Rather, God redeems suffering. He buys it back for our good and his glory. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. You rejoice. So now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet like Nathan though, David does not view trusting God as a call to be passive. Well, I've prayed to God. I've taken care of it. No, he then also acts swiftly, decisively, clearly. Because after reaffirming his commitment to Bathsheba, he calls Nathan, Zadok, and Benaiah to come to him. Just as Adonijah had leading men who were with him, David has puts forward these well-known and respected leaders of Israel. Zadok is one of the leading priests. Nathan was a prophet of God. We know from 2 Samuel 20 and 23 that Benaniah was one of David's three greatest soldiers. And these groups, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, they're like David's own personal bodyguard. They were the elite forces. They were the Navy SEALs, so to speak, of David's army. And so David commands these men, hey, look, go take the servants, go take Solomon, put him on my own mule, and go anoint him. And then blow trumpets and say, long live King Solomon. Now, as we noted earlier, Israel doesn't have time-honored traditions of 
centuries of how do you make the next king. They have Saul and David. That's it. But each time they were anointed with oil, something that Adonijah did not have. And yet Solomon, from Nathan the prophet and Zadok the priest, is anointed with oil. Will they follow these guidelines by David? They go and they anoint him. And when the people see this, they blow a trumpet and they rejoice with dancing and music. They're so overjoyed that the earth shook from their singing, dancing, and shouting. I think it's important to note here that though David had not been as decisive in the past publicly about who should be king, he does not now sit around and moan or groan about his situation. He does not sit there and mentally beat himself up. Oh, man, I screwed this one up again. Y'all leave. I want to sit here and fret for the next couple days about how I messed up again. He calls on God, and he acts. In contrast to what now seems like a small private dinner party, David plans a public coronation. David knows how to act, and he does it. He even sends the quote-unquote Navy SEALs along in case there might be any thoughts of resistance. You know, David's actions would be like today, putting Solomon on Air Force One and then flying him to Marine One and flying to the White House and then going to the East Room and on national television, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court swears him into office. And then you heard of someone else who had a dinner party somewhere in Washington. There, there's no comparison between the two. And along with that, you have the major military leaders standing behind him. And so David is stirred to action. And yet this is an interesting point and one that we have to reflect on. Dale Davis asks, what stirs us as kingdom servants to life? What catches our zeal? Is it our portfolio? Is it that the auto shop still hasn't correctly diagnosed and repaired my vehicle? Is it my inability to find the right drapes? Is it that your team blew its chance to meet, get in the playoffs? Again, do the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer move, grip, and stir us? What stirs us reveals us. And we must, and must we not confess that frequently only our comfort zone has the ability to ignite any real zeal in us? So what is it that gets you animated, that gets you excited, stirs you up? Now, of course, no one, not even myself, wakes up singing zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day every morning. I'm going to read the Bible once again today. No, we don't wake up like that. We all are humans. We're in flesh, and we don't wake up every day with this burning passion for God. And yet, is there ever a spark of love for God? Is there ever something, as you sing the songs, as you gather, your heart is just stirred, and you want to say, I love you, Lord? You know, what is it that excites you? What is it that drives you and energizes you? And here we see that David, even at the end of his life, is stirred for God and the kingdom. He can still show this deep trust in God. And yet, while Solomon is crowned king here and his life is spared, we're left with one last part of the story, and that is, well, what's going to happen to Adonijah? 
And we read about that in verses 41 to 53. Because while Adonijah and his guests are celebrating and they hear this noise, and they ask, well, what's that? That's a lot of shouting. And they don't have to wait because Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest, who just anointed Solomon king, comes in. And they oh, well, this is good news. You're a good man, Jonathan. He says, no, no, you don't understand. This is the worst no- news you could hear. And he recounts how Zadok and Nathan and Benaiah and the Chelethites and the Pelethites, they all went and the leaders anointed him king, and they're all part of it. In other words, it wasn't just that Solomon decided, I got to do something. David and the leaders did something. On top of that, you know, Solomon was on King David's mule. God, he has God's approval. He was anointed. He even, he, right now, he's sitting on the throne right now. But there's more because David's servants, they came in and they said, look, may God make your name greater, Solomon, than David's. May your kingdom be greater than David's. Then the cherry on top, David himself bowed down to Solomon, and everyone's seen it. And David didn't begrudgingly do this as though Solomon had another coup. David said, blessed be God who gave today the one who sits on my throne with my own eyes seeing it. In other words, game, set, match. Solomon wins. Adonijah loses. It looked like Adonijah was going to steal the throne. He had the honorage, he had the leaders, and he had this meal. But Solomon not only has the major leaders, he has the anointing of God. He has David's blessing and the whole city rejoicing while he right now sits on the throne. You can imagine the energy in that feast that went to... As they all were going to the feast, they're probably thinking... I hope people are seeing this. Who's going to Adonijah's feast? That's right, that's me. I'm one of the few people who is going to be a mover and shaker once Adonijah's in charge. I hope you all are all seeing this. And then they're going, I hope no one saw this. I hope no one was looking as I came to this feast. I hope no one is going to be able to say, did you know he was at Adonijah's feast? I wasn't there. I just came to say hi to someone. I wasn't part of that. And they all slink off, except one. Adonijah goes and he grabs the horns of the altar knowing his life is on the line. And so they come and tell Solomon. Solomon basically makes a deal. He'll be loyal, he'll live. If he shows any disloyalty, he will be killed, which we'll need more of next week. And Adonijah comes and bows before Solomon. And thus, what appeared to be a unvary, a very Unpeaceful transfer of power ends with Solomon ruling in peace. Yet this raises a major challenge for each of us, though, and that is what do we do with our Adonijah-like desires? I mean, sure, none of us are conspiring to take over the White House. None of us are that foolish. But what about our Adonijah-like desires in our homes or in our offices, our schools, or in our hearts where there is a power struggle every day. There is a subtle, and sometimes not so subtle, battle of kingdoms. Of who's going to rule the remote? Who's going to rule the money purchases? Who's going to rule the restaurant choice? And we could go on and on of the conflicts that can arise over and over throughout the day if we are each 
seeking our own kingdom. And the solution is found in first being honest with God and confessing that I want to live for me. I don't want to pray thy kingdom come. I want to pray my kingdom come. And yet that's what God calls sin. And I submit to God and say, God, may your kingdom come. And as I want your kingdom to come, that means I'm willing to submit to you and you and you. And yes, as a parent, as other times, at times I have to assert my authority, but I'm not doing it to hold on to my power. I'm doing it to serve and to love. And yet, we don't like to do that. And so we confess and we cry out for mercy because we know that God will forgive. And so we cry out to him and we realize that there has really only been one person who has ever fully submitted. And that was Jesus, the king of kings who humbled himself, gave up the power to die for his kingdom servants. And so how are we going to deal with our Adonijah-like desires? You know, it's easy when there's nothing on the line, but when the rubber meets the road, will we submit to God and submit to others? Like Adonijah, it can seem like a time, hey, look, I got all these people in front of me running. I got people saying, long live King Adonijah. I'm going to rule forever. I can do what I want. And like Adonijah, though, at some point, the time's going to come when you realize, oh, someone else is on the throne. Someone else actually is going to call the shots, and I either must bow the knee or be put to death. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it may appear right now, you can do what you want, and God has given that freedom. But one day, we will bow the knee. And so he offers mercy now. If you submit to him, he will give forgiveness. He will give new life. And he is the best king you can ever serve. So may we joyfully bow the knee. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, would you rule, not just in our theoretical thoughts, but in our daily lives, that we would bow the knee to you in our homes, in our offices, in our school places, because we have bowed the knee to you, that we extend that same love to those around us. Oh, Lord, we love you, and yet there still is the battle in our hearts every day. And so would you reign supreme in us today? In your son's name we pray. Amen.